a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 96 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. Follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan. And as usual, ratings, reviews, emails, any kind of positive or critical feedback is always good for making the show better. As mentioned just a minute ago, this is episode 96. Just four more to go until 100. And I'm really happy to say that... I'm going to have a nice surprise for all the listeners for episode 100. I tried to take a big swing and get a big name, and I succeeded. I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. I'm pretty excited about it, though. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And adding to that, when I was trying to contact sportscasters, hoping to get a big name for episode 100... I sent out a series of emails, assuming that the majority of them would not be replied to or nobody would get back to me. But I, in fact, did get two very big names to consent to be interviewed for this podcast. So both episode 99 and 100, they're still a little ways out, but they are going to be two spectacular episodes that I am really excited to share with you. In this week's episode, it's also pretty spectacular. It is the voice of the Syracuse Orange, Matt Park. And Matt, we were fortunate to meet at the National Sports Media Association Banquet. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Happy to do it, Logan. Thanks for asking. Matt, one of the things I like to start just about every guest with, at what point in your life did you know that play-by-play was going to be your calling? Well, I think it was pretty early on. You know, um, those of us that grow up as kids and you get into sports, and, and I loved uh, every sport, and you know, played everything in the backyard and read and watched everything I could get my hands on. Uh, but I think eventually you learn you're not going to uh, play shortstop for the Yankees. But, I was uh, barely good enough to play for my high school team, let alone uh, beyond that. So uh, very early, I I would say, you know, 12, 13, 15, somewhere, certainly in that neighborhood. I had a couple older cousins who uh, really sparked an interest in sports in me, and and I would follow them around at their high school games and and, uh, then even kind of broadcast my own and got involved in broadcasting a little bit in high school. And and, uh, from there, it was... uh, kind of catching fire to move from one thing to the next and and find my way. Knowing what you want to do, especially for people who eventually choose to go to Syracuse and try the Newhouse route, seems to be really important. Is there, as someone who's involved in the, as an adjunct professor there, do you ever find anybody who finds themselves late and transfers in as like a junior or a sophomore? 
at the Newhouse School? Sure. I mean, that it's not unheard of. It happens, uh, I would say, fairly regularly. Um, you're right that I, I view myself personally, and I see it in others, it's a blessing to have that direction, to feel like you know what you want to do from an early enough age that you sort of hit the ground running and pursue it aggressively, because I think to be competitive, that's an important part. But there's a list of people who you might know as Syracuse grads that weren't necessarily Newhouse or didn't go about it in the same pattern. You know, the first one that leaps to mind is Dave Pash, who's exceptionally talented and has done a great job, uh, had my job uh, before me, and then um, has gone on to uh, the Arizona Cardinals and ESPN. I don't believe he was a Newhouse student, and I don't think it matters. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, nobody asks you what your grades are um, once you've gotten out. The Newhouse uh, name opens doors and connects you to things, but I always tell students, you know, if, if I meet a high school student who's coming and thinking about coming here and maybe not sure if he's, he or she is going to get into Newhouse, you can still get a lot of the experience here without actually being in those classes or, or having that name on your uh, diploma or your, or your paperwork. So it's really about a lot of the other stuff, extracurricular activity and the connections you make and the work that you do. So um, I think it's a great industry. It's a lot of fun. It's booming. And I think there's a lot of different ways to go at it. So your first professional job that I could find after graduating from Syracuse was with the West Tennessee Diamond Jacks. Tell me about the uh, how you were able to come up with that break after graduation and your experience in West Tennessee. I'm assuming that's what it is. It just said sure. West 10. Sure. Uh, that was, Well, they were known as, at the time as West 10. That's now the um, – and it is in West Tennessee. It's just kind of a, a change on the name. Uh, that's now known as the Jackson Generals. I think all of the teams I worked for early have have now changed their name, which shows you how old I am. But no, my actually my first job was before that uh, in the South Atlantic League with the team now known as the Canapolis Intimidators. Um, back then, they were the Piedmont Bowl Weebles, which is another crazy name. Uh, this must have gravitated toward those uh, early on. But so I left school. I was able to because. Uh, the way Syracuse is set up, and I came into college with a bunch of credit ahead of time, I was able to lighten my academic load for the spring semester of my senior year with the intent that hopefully I could get a full-season baseball job or at least put myself in position to, to do that. So senior year, you know, went to the winter meetings and all that, and one lead kind of led to another and, and uh, had an opportunity to go uh, to the Phillies Class A affiliate in Kannapolis, North Carolina, which is just north of Charlotte. And went there, did the games for two years, and did uh, UNC Greensboro basketball in the off-seasons for two years. And then the uh, Cubs A team there in Jackson, Tennessee, called and, and hooked up with them. So I was there for four, and now I've been back here since. Um, so that's kind of the, the early part of it, but I think uh, – you know, we all have to show that persistence to kind of keep at it and, and hope that you make a, the right connection and pounce on the appropriate opportunity or those things present themselves and uh, move your way up, try to get involved in as much stuff as you can. And, and for me, it was important to keep 
my ear to the ground about what was happening back here at Syracuse all the time because it's home for me and and uh, the type of thing that I'd be paying attention to anyway, regardless of where I was. So I've been fortunate to, to line it up and, and make that my work as well. Do you ever just pop in old tapes just for the purpose of hearing <laughs> you go, home run, bull weevils? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I do not do that. Uh, I do have the tape somewhere. I'm not sure what it would take to uh, to get me to, to throw them in because I'm sure I would cringe. I probably should do it because I think it would be a nice um, calibration. You know, I, I deal with so many students here now, and I kind of critique their work, and I'm sure it's on a much harder scale than than I would have been capable of back then. In other words, they're they're better now than we were, you know, 20 years ago. It's just just the way it is. Um, so maybe someday I'll, I'll throw those in. But uh, you know, when, when you're when you're just learning, as you're aware, Logan, it uh, it can be pretty rough, and it does take years and years to kind of find your groove. But uh, I've kept them for a reason, so someday we'll we'll throw them in. Did you ever have to stop yourself from laughing, like very early in the in your career, just because of the name Bull Weevils? <laughs> no, we, you know, back then it's so funny because I did a bunch of things then, not really knowing any better that. Um, I probably wouldn't do now, or I, I would write off as cheesy. You know, uh, when the bases were loaded, I would say the the bags are full of bugs. <laughs> um, the the team slogan was unbelievable. Uh, so I probably worked that in here or there. I can still remember I I left my first year to come back for my college graduation, and I had the phrase unbelievable off like the game program. I put it on the top of my cap at gradu- graduation, which now seems like a ridiculously uh, silly thing to have done. Um, so, you know, Hey, that's, that's part of the fun of it. And I've gone full circle because now I'm completely grumpy old man when it comes to these goofy uh, minor league baseball nicknames and stuff. Most of them, some of them are really clever and I like, and, and most of them I don't, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but the, yeah, given the first two places I worked, they both had very contrived uh, minor league baseball nicknames. But you know, for us, we're just like the players. We're, we're trying to come and get our opportunities and learn and you know, make mistakes that people aren't going to notice. Uh, you know, certainly back then they didn't, and and uh, try to get better day after day and, and get the the work in, and and uh, hopefully you get noticed and have an opportunity to advance. To follow up on something you said a little bit earlier. And one of my personal regrets was that I put more time into, you know, making sure that I was getting good grades and less into getting good at calling games and prepping and doing all that stuff. And talking to a lot of broadcasters, they either failed classes or took lighter loads like you did because of that. How important is the actual education compared to the experience? Well, it is important. You know, it's funny because I go to these career days and people, one of the questions the kids are mandated to ask is, you know, what level of education do you have to be a whatever? Well, the person next to you might be a doctor or, or a lawyer or, <laughs> well, for those, you need to demonstrate that you've learned the subject material and <laughs> that you uh, have gone through the proper steps to become a doctor or become a lawyer and, and that you're going to be a good one and, and not a hack. Uh, in what we do, there's an art to it. It's It's subjective. I, so I say in the same breath, there are no requirements, yet I don't know anybody in the industry, and it's a pretty small industry, I don't know anybody that 
doesn't have a four-year degree or, you know, more or less has, has come close enough, you know, but um, it didn't go to college, let's say. So, and when I visit with high school students who are coming up, maybe considering coming to school here, and the parents are there, I always say to the parents, you know, before I get into the spiel, I say, earmuffs, <laughs> you know, to c- cover it up, like, because I don't want to be the one saying that academics aren't important. Of course they are. You, you want to achieve. You, you, I got good grades. I, you know, I didn't I didn't take a lighter, like I did all the requirements. What I'm saying is I had had a head start, so it was front-loaded. I, I didn't, uh, in the end, I didn't have as many classes. Um, and I would encourage people to do that if you can. But um, the, the, the academic aspect of what, I can only, only speak for here, but the academic aspect of what happens here can be secondary to the extracurricular opportunities, which are so significant, and uh, and that's just the the way it is. I would not tell anybody that academics aren't important or that they shouldn't uh, do their best. But what's really going to determine, you know, do you get that first job or the second job and kind of get out there is going to be the the work that you put on tape and the connections that you make and how you treat people and and uh, how you follow up on all of that. So um, that for what we do, our little slice of, of the industry is pretty important. After the Diamond Jacks, you, if my research is correct, is when you kind of got the first big break in your career to get on board with ISP to be involved with Syracuse, mostly as a pre-post-game host. How did that come about? Yeah, I almost uh, went to Syracuse a year prior. Uh, I did four years of the baseball in, in Tennessee, and on the side, I was kind of doing football and basketball, radio, TV. I did the Gulf South game of the week on TV, you know, for a couple of years, little things like that. And then there was a conversation. They were going to bring me in to do basketball color and then lacrosse play-by-play. And uh, it didn't come to be because they had uh, had a former player that they were able to bring in to, to do the basketball. And so... And that didn't work out great. So then the following year, uh, Dave Pash left, and they hired for both positions. Uh, so I had applied for the main uh, play-by-play position. At the time, I think I was 26. Um, and they said, well, you know, we don't think you're you know old enough or mature enough for this type of position. And they went with a guy named Mark Johnson, who had been at Southern Illinois, and uh, I'm sorry, Illinois State, and uh, Mark, you know, looked the part, carries himself uh, like a grown-up and a professional and been there, an incredible voice. Um, and Mark had that position for two years, including the, the first year that we came in was the, the national championship uh, season for basketball. So uh, Mark had that nice run right right through there. And I was the football sideline reporter and pregame host and basketball host and analyst and lacrosse play-by-play person. I decided that at that time um, – I might as well come here and do it. I think, you know, financially it was probably, you know, we're, we're talking about six and one, half a dozen, another, you're not getting rich doing either of those. Um, the baseball for me, I felt had run its course. I wasn't getting any closer to the big leagues by staying there um, with a double a baseball team and, and didn't feel like there was more I could accomplish there um, to get me into this realm would be something different. And maybe it would lead to um, where I wanted to be. And after two years of that, Mark got an opportunity to be the sports director of KOA Radio in Denver, and he's still there in various capacities.
capacities. I'm not sure at the radio station anymore, but all that while he's been the football and basketball play-by-play voice at Colorado, which has been a, a great fit for him. He's done a little bit of everything there and, and has forged his own path, and it's worked out great for all concerned. And, and he left, and they offered me the the opportunity to move up um, right away. And for me, that was you know really important. I, I kind of felt like I wanted to be in my in the big leagues by 30. Uh, that check that box for me, you know, I think I was 28 or something like that when, when the opportunity came along to have the lead uh, position here, and and uh, now many years have flown by, and I'm an old goat, but uh, in, the, in the same spot and, uh, and enjoying it. Following Mark Johnson, who has, like, the voice of God, you have a good deep baritone voice, but Mark's is just something else. Did you almost feel like you had to talk different doing that or was there any am i just uh grasping at straws yeah i think it's a grasp i mean i i I could understand why anybody would say it i just i think people have different strengths and are different fits i also think voice for the most part is overrated um you know mark and a handful of other people are in the you know paul keels at ohio state guys like that that have you know next level kind of sound I think the important thing as far as your voice is concerned, you, you want to be able to stop the dial. When, when people are, they don't do this anymore, but when people are flipping around and, and hitting scan, you want to have something that has some sort of presence to it. And so that's not a real high bar. Uh, a lot of times it could be just because you identify a certain voice with a, uh, with a certain product, whether it's the Major League Baseball team or, or a major college, something like that. And you, you know what marty brenneman sounds like or what tom hamilton sounds like etc um you know and if you're in the industry you should know what all those people sound like you know i think that that's kind of a, a sport for for me um so that being said i don't think voice alone is is a super important factor i think the difference between mark and me is that for mark you know he, he wasn't from here he was learning on the fly and getting to know people and it was his first sort of uh, big-time job coming to this point, too. And he was studying it, as as I would if I was dropped into, you know, some Big Ten job or, or something. I would be having to learn it. Where, for me, at Syracuse, I already kind of knew a lot of the people, and I knew the history of the program. And, I, and so that type of thing was an easier uh, transition for me, and that would be where my strength would lie, that it was just a, a comfort level for me to swing in and know who was who and and uh, get up to speed with with what was happening here because uh, yes I'd been removed from it for six years or so while I was out in the, the minor league baseball world but it was my alma mater and and my hometown and the, the team I'd be rooting for anyway so uh, that was kind of why uh, this has been a fit for me and it's it stayed that way and as we mentioned before that was for ISP, and we met at the National Sports Media Association Hall of Fame weekend. That's how we got connected for this podcast, and one of their events was a panel discussion talking about the influence of ISP, which eventually became IMG, which eventually became Learfield IMG. Uh, What did you learn from working in that environment with people who were revolutionizing the way that broadcasts are produced? You know, that's an interesting question, um, not one I've considered before. And I would say I don't know any different. 
you know, from the time that I came in here to uh, to Syracuse in terms of having a major college job, you know, I'd done small college stuff before, UNC Greensboro and Lambeth and, and places like that, which was a, a minimal, you know, bare-bones kind of thing. Coming here, uh, yes, you know, ours and other major schools, they, they feel big time, but from the time coming in here, Syracuse is one of the very first ISP schools. We've operated more or less the same way for you know twenty odd years now. I've been here uh, fifteen or sixteen, um, so it's not necessarily a, a matter of learning from them. I would say it's just kind of that's how we've we've operated, and now it's more and more common because of the growth of IMG and Learfield independently, and then they merge. So. Um, this is basically the way it, it happens in, you know, the power conference schools and even a lot of the ones that aren't in the power conferences. Um, the, the influence that they've had is, is obviously significant, but the, the, that's kind of the model now and how, uh, rights are purchased and resold and how the money changes hands and how programs are marketed. Um, so I think, for us, we were kind of in early on the the ground floor of it, but it's just sort of now become commonplace everywhere. Were you? I'm assuming you were on the mic for the six overtime UConn versus Syracuse game, correct? Yes. Just wanted to make sure before I went farther down. Uh, <laughs> how do you get through six overtimes? Did you find a way to sneak out and go to the bathroom? What was your voice like <laughs> after that game? Just go through all the logistics of finding a way to do that broadcast sure well it was an awesome time and we've told the story many times about that game and the uniqueness of it and to me that's one of the great reasons that we do what we do is because you never know what can happen on a given day and uh that's what makes live sports exciting is the, the drama of it and the unknown and uh the game prior against seton hall in the uh Big East tournament was a great game the day before and that started a stretch. I assume this had something to, to do with it, because it, uh, in terms of getting through those games, my partner at the time, uh, Matt Rose, former Syracuse player, he he introduced. Her, I don't know whose idea it was, but starting the day prior, we had a five-hour energy shot before the game. We had never done it, and then because that was, oh, it was a great game, it went well, great broadcast. The next day, we do it. So we were we were pretty well uh, wired, I think, but. At the time, also, ISP produced a lot of the other Big East tournament games for other markets. So I had done a game earlier in the day of what turned out to be the six-overtime game, and Matt had done both games of the early doubleheader. So not only did he do the six-overtime game, but it was his third game of the day. Um, It was my second. Uh, And we have the hour pregame show or what have you. So... um, the the Big East people were great. First of all, the adrenaline of the game keeps you going. Uh, the way it was set up back then, the bathroom was close, so I think there were a couple of opportunities to run out, certainly at halftime or um, maybe between one of the overtimes or whatever. And the uh, Big East folks, John Paquette and his staff, I can still remember, they kind of roamed in the bullpen down in front of us behind the TV people, and they were coming up to us with waters and, and that type of thing and and I think my biggest takeaway or memory of that night was the unity that we all sort of had that everybody in the building knew 
that something special was happening. Um, we would turn as each new overtime went, and the people sitting behind us were sort of, I'd call them pseudo-media. They had passes but weren't really in a working capacity. They were just kind of in the extra seats. And we're high-fiving, like, hey, how cool is this? It's going another overtime and another. And Syracuse famously never led until the last overtime. So it always felt like it was up to Syracuse to extend the game or to dodge some sort of bullet from Connecticut putting it away. Um, but we've made it through. I think Matt will tell you that his voice, uh, he scuffled a little bit, but uh, and mine probably wasn't uh, as strong as, as it was at the start of the game, certainly, but uh, found a way to get through it and, and uh, enjoy listening back to those uh, highlights and times because it was, uh, you know, of all the you know, thousands of times we've been on the air, it was one of the most, you know, craziest and most uh, unforeseen and, and uh, really a game with spectacular turns. And you probably get this all the time, but not only being at Syracuse, which is the the factory of sports broadcasters, but also being an adjunct instructor who particularly critiques the work of a lot of potential broadcasters, do you feel like your students or just your broadcast in general is under more of a microscope than it otherwise would be? I do. Whether it actually is, I don't know, but I absolutely feel that way. You know, um, I feel like it's my responsibility to carry myself a certain way professionally and to do a certain quality of broadcast and, and have the product be good and be an example because I can't have it stink or take it casually or be a bozo and then turn around and teach anybody, oh, well, here's how I do it, but you should do it this way. I, I think that's not right. Um, and they see me or we travel in the same circles all the time, you know, whether that's uh, the football interviews on Tuesday night where they're all there with their uh, tape recorders for the student media or or certainly at the games and everything else. The, the students here have pretty much limitless opportunity, and I hope they understand um, just what's available to them and how, how great it is. Um, but I do think, and they all know that my door is open to them to help to whatever extent that I can. Um, but I, and they're good. And so I absolutely feel like I've got to kind of keep my guard up and, um, approach my work, uh, a certain way to, if not to be a good example, to certainly not be a bad example, uh, for them. And, and, uh, whether they actually pay attention to what we're doing, I don't know, but uh, I think it's healthy to, to work on the assumption that, uh, somebody's always watching and and uh, trying to take notes, and, and so that's kind of how I try to conduct myself and, and set the standard for our broadcast crew. What made you want to decide to get into the academic side of things and mold young broadcasters? Was it an expectation going into the position, or how did that come about? Kind of, um, and it's not going to be as altruistic as maybe you're hoping. It's turned out that way. Like I, I absolutely genuinely enjoy doing it. It's a major time commitment, but I appreciate the connection that I have with the students. It's only grown because over the last two years I've headed up the the ACC network relative to being the gate gatekeeper that brings the students on the air. I coach all the students. You know, we, if we do uh, 80 or 90 events a year on ACC network, almost all of them are with student broadcasters. I only do a couple games myself. Um, and Brian Higgins, who's a former student and a really talented a uh, guy who works with us here doing the women's basketball and lacrosse, he might do another handful of the ACC Network games. And then after that, it's students. Well, I 
schedule the students and coach them up and and uh, critique their work and and I've really enjoyed it. So don't get me wrong. Um, getting into it though, in the short term, is how can I make another couple bucks? <laughs> you know, when you, when I first started here, you know, because I'm at that point uh, just hosting and doing the sideline and and kind of getting paid on a, a per game basis. Um, you're certainly not getting rich uh, doing that. Not that you get into this to get rich. I'm just talking about having enough money to sustain you uh, as a grown-up. Um, so when I started, Dave Pash had taught this class, and, and you know we're talking about adjuncts. I don't think it's uh, sharing trade secrets here. We're, we're not talking about fabulous wealth. I'm looking at you know four grand a semester or something. David taught it. Then Mark and I split it. Um, and then when Mark left, I've kind of done that um, myself all the while here for the last, you know, 15-odd years, 15, 16 years. Um, and a couple other things have popped up here and there. We ran the seminar with the uh, NBA Players Association for NBA players that wanted to get into broadcasting during that time. So back to your original question, absolutely, I enjoy doing it. Uh, my father was a teacher. Um, I, I kind of feel connected to him a little bit by having a teaching role. Uh, certainly we all have mentors. I, I owe it to the people that showed me the way to, to kind of pass it forward. And so um, it's become a very much a, a connected part of what my job is here. Um, I, I wouldn't have a job like this really at any other institution that's, that's exactly like this. And so um, I cherish that aspect of it and the uniqueness of it and, and when I kind of evaluate the whole portfolio, it's a major, major part. A few of the past guests on this show have been professors and worked in the academic side of things. The one that really stood out was Tom Hedrick from Kansas. And he said, and I found it interesting, I don't think I followed up on it like I should have then, but I want to ask you now, telling somebody who just doesn't have it, that they need to do something else, that play-by-play may not be their thing. Do you ever have to do that, or is your job to do whatever you can to try to make it their thing if they want it to be? I think you do a little of both. I think the assignments and the grades tell you that. Uh, And when I say, you know, the, the grades that you might get in class pretty much indicate potential professional future or not but there have been people that maybe in in class have not been standouts that somewhere along the line afterward it has clicked uh for them and they, they've gone on and I, i'm certainly not the, the be all end all when it comes to uh grading or being the arbiter of, of who's got the chops and, and who doesn't uh, but then the other part of it is on the assignments when it relates for what we do here let's say acc network if if you're um getting the single camera uh volleyball match well you're you're probably not at the same caliber as somebody who's getting the uh women's basketball game with two top 15 teams or the men's lacrosse game with two national title contenders or women's lacrosse or whatever so um i think students sort of figure that out uh have i ever said that to somebody i probably have i don't recall specific examples and then the other thing we have now again in the acc network realm and the the, the era that we're in is you can say to somebody, hey, look, um, you have the right instincts here that can serve you in various other capacities. Maybe you could be a really good graphics person, a producer, a director, or whatever. You can dive into the sport that you like the most. Uh, 
you're not the most talented or most gifted play-by-play person or interviewer. Uh, you can continue to work at that, but those skills or that interest might serve you over here. And if you pursue the track of being in the control room or the truck, maybe you get to the major leagues faster. And I think there's appeal in that uh, for some people. So uh, that's kind of how it goes here. I think it's really a, a self-selection process. People f- sort of find their own uh, paths and avenues uh, to pursue uh, what it is that, that, you know, intersects their passion and skills, and, and that's what makes it fun. You also work with athletes, as you mentioned this, with the NBA Players Association, but just kind of athletes in general who aspire to be broadcasters. What's that like, and what are the unique challenges of that compared to just a normal student? Well, it's interesting, and you just use the phrase, aspire to be broadcasters. You don't know that they do, or don't, for that matter. That program typically was an introductory deal to let them find out if this was something they wanted to pursue any further. And they're NBA players. That's what they aspired to, you know, in that case, and and maybe we'll do it with other leagues, you know, going forward. Um, They've already achieved their dream job, and they've made gazillions. The idea of going into broadcasting is kind of a secondary thought where you got to get out of bed to do something every day. You may want to be, it, these are people that if they do go, go into it, they want to be connected. They feel like they've got something to share. They, uh, want to stay in it. And if you don't, that's fine too, but you're sort of learning that, um, over your time here. So that's what I would say that, that program was. Those guys, you know, they're used to being coached. What I really enjoy with dealing with them is you can push them hard because they want to succeed. They're used to succeeding. In fact, tend to beat themselves up when they're not automatically great at this. And of course they're not because it's so different uh, from what they're used to that uh, they get better faster. And if, you know, we, that program was three, four days, if we had three, four weeks or even a full week or a week and a half, I think you'd see a lot more progress with them. They just, as we're starting to get them going, it was, it was time for them to leave. But uh, we've had uh, a pretty good, roster of guys that have come out of there that that have gone on to pursue uh, television professionally and have had success with it, and so that's uh, rewarding to see. Tell us about Shaq borrowing your tie. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's anything more to it than, uh, of course, every time we've run it, uh, somebody shows up without something, a tie or a belt or, or whatever, so we just happened to... I had bought a couple ties for myself, I think, pr- just prior to that, and I happened to have them, so... Th- the the tie that Shaq borrowed, he must have either had a different one in mind to wear or didn't bring one at all and for what we wanted to do. We, we thought it would look best for him to be in a tie, and so I happened to have a, a few extra on hand. And I remember, I think he wore it with the tag still on it because I'd never even worn it. And I still, I've worn it once, I think, maybe uh, since, but I still kind of keep it more in a, a cabinet as a memento uh, than anything else, which is kind of funny. But that whole experience of, of Shaq being here was, you talk about breaks, I mean, that really started to make that uh, program because it got a ton of publicity and um, sort of begat the uh, ensuing years where other guys came. And, and I don't take any credit. I take 0.0 credit for Shaq being Shaq because he's 
uh, an incredible personality and so charismatic, and, and he he could go on to uh, to do what he wanted to do in anything, uh, certainly without my help. But um, but he was, you know, really interesting person, way smarter than I'm sure people give him credit for, and uh, it was a joy to be around for a couple of days. You're a pretty tall guy, six six two, six four, somewhere in there. But Shaq is just yes. so huge. I'm just trying to see how far up that tie he has to start that knot. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a really good uh, insight on your part, and I, I'm we absolutely uh, tie the tie differently. I know that. I I can still remember when he was here. Of course, he literally almost you know created a car accident with people that are you know rubbernecking driving along the road, and there's a million uh, stories from that time, but. Um, in our old office, he comes in and he's wearing a suit and he, we hung his suit jacket up on like the back of a chair while he didn't want it for a minute. And then one of our shorter, uh, staffers put it on. It was a guy. It was like five. He's probably five, uh, eight, let's say maybe five, six. <laughs> and it, it basically touched the floor. I mean, he could have worn it as a, a, a gown. And, uh, you know, Shaq is, ju- he's just incredibly big. You know, the first time I shook his hand, it's like, it, it is what people say, you know, it's like putting your hand on the catcher's mitt or something like that, you know. Um, but, you know, huge smile to go with it and, and personality and caring and um, just a, a really great guy. Well, I was fortunate enough to have you able to critique my work, and I always, I don't know. What Hopefully the, you overcome it. The, the right word. No, it was it was positive, but what I was going to bring up was just how different, you know, one person's critique can be compared to someone else. And what I found particularly interesting about yours was you kind of were against over-description as far as really trying to, for lack of a better word, Kevin Harlan level paint the picture when you're not Kevin Harlan. I feel like that was not very eloquently said, but how do you value enough description versus too much? Yeah. It's funny because I I feel like I have to couch anything I say in that regard to not be misconstrued. I, I couldn't have more respect for Kevin Harlan. I think he's just incredibly good at what he does. And there's so many. I'm a radio, TV, play-by-play junkie. I listen to everybody. I listen to all yours and all these other podcasts, and uh, I can't get enough of it. And I love listening to Kevin Harlan. We teach this class on Monday night, which is a kind of a radio uh, class, a lot of play-by-play discussion. And I say to the students, you know, on your drive home or whatever, put Monday night football on. And I do the same thing. I drive home and I listen to Monday night football. What I point out to students is, let's say in the non-Kevin Harlan division, he's at a a different level in terms of execution. I think people who are learning how to do play-by-play tend to use too many words period. That's a universal uh, obstacle that I think everybody needs to start with. I think certainly when you're making a transition from radio to television, almost everybody speaks too much. Um, and on the, the radio side, it's the same type of thing. You didn't speak too quickly. So I'm huge on word economy. Let's cut out a lot of these unnecessary words so that the ones you do use have more meaning and you have a better range of emotion in delivering them. If you have, in the, let's say in a 20-second in a clip, if you have 100 words, you can't hit any of them 
well enough to actually demonstrate the emotion or flair or, or, or what's happening in, in the moment. If you have 80 in that same time, now you can lead up to them a little bit uh, differently. And so um, what you probably caught, and I, whether it was yours or somebody else's, I, I, I said, I, I don't have a lot of time for pointing out or trying to be overly descriptive about things that are already sort of presumed that it's a chest high snap. Okay. If it's not a chest high snap, I want you to tell me because that's not the norm. If it is a chest high snap or it's a right footed punter, don't waste your breath on that because there's something else that you can use that breath for that paints the picture better. I would say overall, listenability is what we're going for. That's the most important thing. Um, I love Doc Emmerich. It was a real treat to meet him. Waffleboarded is his thing. Let him do that. Nobody ever went out on the ice goofing around with their buddies and said, hey, waffleboard that puck over here. Okay? It's just not how people talk. So going overly descriptive or using ridiculous vocabulary is as much distracting as it is helpful. And so that's why I tend to not try to talk it out of young broadcasters, but at least make them think about, think long and hard about whether they want to include it. The other thing you talked with me in particular about was using pauses uh, to enhance the drama of a moment. And that's something that I'm not great at, admittedly, which is why I had you listen to my tape. But uh, what is the best way to implement that? That's a good question. I, I think partly it's listening and understanding, and that's why it takes forever for us to actually be good at this and not robotic. You know, when we all start, I think we all kind of basically start the same way. You, you think about your vocabulary and you think about what you, word am I going to use in this situation or that. When you've done hundreds of games, it tends to come more naturally, almost as if it's speaking a, a second language or you have a second set of you know, vocabulary or a pattern of speaking over here. Um, I think the, the aspect of the pause, the reason it's important to me, is you're trying to build up to the action in in games. Uh, when I listen to or try to do my own baseball play-by-play, it's incredibly important. It's one of the most important things that there's a pause between the release of the pitch and the action that ensues from the pitch. You know, you need to hear the 2-2 two, two, right into the crowd, or especially at the higher levels you go up and you've got great effects and great sound. You know, listen to a major league game. It is so cool to hear that pop of the mitt and the umpire's call or uh, the crack of the bat. And I think that's why we were talking about that conference it is hard to go out and do high school football it's just you and you're in a booth and you don't know the rosters and all that stuff the higher levels you go there's a lot more instruments in your orchestra you've got yourself you've got your partner you've got the you know let's just say in the baseball example you've got the home plate area mic so you're hearing the bat the mitt the umpire the peanut vendor the the organ player all of that comes into play um the more you kind of know what you're doing and the more you have at your disposal. Um, and so I think part of it is listening. And then it, then you determine, well, as the speaker here, what is it that I can add? If I don't have anything to add, I'm going to zip it. And that's laying out in television. 
you know, I think we talked about that event when the when the touchdown is scored, you can just say touchdown or whatever that you know takes the lead or the the, the important information. Then get out of the way. Then we're going to have the hero shots and the band and the cheerleader and the dejected coach and the excited coach and the, that sequence is what tells the story. And, and I think um, once you become a little more cognizant of that and aware, you realize that your words are not necessarily the most important part. What you're trying to do is, is use the words to connect the dots on all the rest of it. How important is it, do you think, for up-and-coming broadcasters to go to events like that, like the NSMA Hall of Fame weekend? I know there's probably other ones, but to me, they're they're absolutely invaluable as far as networking tools. What do you tell your students about going to things like that? That's a great question because on the way home, I was thinking about what would I say to them about it, whether it's valuable, not valuable. There weren't really a lot of other students. I mean, to me, it wasn't big enough to insist, like, oh, you really have to go to this. At the same time, because it's not that big, anybody there could have met Doc Emmerich or Dave Sims or Matt LePay or what, you know, which was awesome. And, and, and uh, Eric Reed from the, the Heat and get some really good um, feedback from, from these people. It's great. Tony Caridi, very giving of his time from, from West Virginia, Bill Roth. So that's awesome. I think my recommendation is going to be I could see it being a valuable trip for our juniors. The, the, at that point, they know enough to go in there and their tape is good enough that they can kind of get it critiqued and it be representative. And now you can implement some of that and go into your next year. Most of our people, I would hope either already have jobs by, you know, the June after their senior year, or they're, they're pretty close to dialing that in, or, you know, they're not at that point trying to, you know, add one more contact or, or what have you. It's not that it's not valuable. It's just that they're sort of, book is closed or is closing a little bit um, at that point. Uh, so I think they could still benefit uh, from it. I think I will encourage people to go in, in the future. Um, I encourage them to take advantage of the opportunities they have day to day. You know, when you go on the road, you know, and again, a Syracuse is unique, and, and, and I hope, again, that they realize how, how fortunate they are that it's commonplace that the student newspaper, the student television people, the student radio, they travel to all the road games. Well, that that means it's all those different schools worth of people that you can meet and all these network television people that are coming in on every game that you're a part of. That's what really makes the, the whole thing unique. So take advantage of those opportunities to make connections along the way. The NSMA thing is great, but it's just that's just one more opportunity after you've had dozens. Um, so a long-winded answer, but I, I think, um, you know, I would, there's no reason to not go. If you, if you have the ability to, to, uh, to pop by, I think it's worthwhile. You touched on something that I find interesting when you said you hope that your students realize how fortunate they are to have those opportunities. And there's a, maybe a misconception that some Syracuse people come off as entitled or arrogant and maybe they earn that uh, most of my personal experience has not been that way but but the the thought is out there uh, how would you respond to that and how do you make sure that uh, people don't get that way yeah well i you know i think that comes down to an individual thing certainly i'm aware that that's out there it's out there for a reason i i'm not going to necessarily refute it i think there's good people and jerks in every subset of 
society. I'm sure you pick, you know, random school, and I'm sure there's uh, great people and there's jerks. Uh, I hate when I hear it. I hate if we do anything that contributes to that. I I saw, and this this came up recently. I, like something on the, the school Twitter account, so and so got a job, and then they're like hashtag We produced the best. I can't stand that. You know, the, the I think we can talk about all the reasons we can pat ourselves on the back about how great the process or the machine is here. <laughs> the number one reason that too often goes unsaid is we attract the best students. They they start, you know, if you, if you put any credence into this uh, STAA, you know, ranking and whatever, the reason that Drew Carter and, and Noah Eagle finished one and two doesn't have to do that much with the experience they got when they were here. It's because they, the type of people they are and the, the approach they took on their own, you know, in the background they had before they ever got here. Um, they were polished up a little bit or had the opportunity to show themselves uh, when they were here, but it wasn't like, you know, Syracuse University produced or, you know, um, took them from, from nothing to, to make them, you know, at the top. So that that's kind of nonsense. I, I don't like that type of stuff or, or lack of uh, humility in, in that whole experience. Um, you know, I, I don't know really how to answer your question other than you try to teach people to respect one another respect uh, the opportunities that you have, the blessings you've been given. Understand um, how this all fits in the the you know day to day fabric of our uh, industry and society, and not to take anything too uh, seriously, and try to help one another and treat people as you'd like to be treated, et cetera, et cetera. So, hopefully, you know, you say your personal experience with with uh, our community has been good. I would hope that other people would say that, and, and that would continue to be the case. Yeah, you really can't do a podcast like this for almost four years without coming across a bunch of Syracuse people. And again, everyone <laughs> from from Drew Carter to Bob Costas has been on this show, and it's uh, everyone's been extremely kind. So I have no personal. Yeah, and I, and I would like to think that we're also passionate about the experience and passionate about this place. I, you know, for me, it's home, so it's a little bit different. You know, the, the best school in the for what I wanted to do for a living was, you know, down the road from my house. And uh, that's one thing. That's pretty unique. Everybody else, they chose to come here. They chose to put up with the winners and, and all the stuff that stinks about it. You know, we, we're not doing a podcast about that. You know, but then I think they want to tell people that it worked out well for them. They want to help the next generation. You know, the reason I think you use the expression New House Mafia, which is not really an expression I use, but I live it day to day. We know one another. All my friends are people like that that are, you know, from the industry or, you know, I was just listening to another one of your episodes with, with Dave Benz. And, you know, Dave did not go to Syracuse when we're, we're buddies. We're not uh, super close, but the names he's rattling off as his mentors or the people that were around in his formative uh, years are the same as mine. You know, uh, Dan Horde for me is a, is a, incredibly underrated, super talented, creative, caring guy, happy to, to really learn the ropes uh, from him and and would be happy to share that and tell anybody that. you know. And so I think that's kind of uh, what you sense in terms of people talking about uh, the Syracuse experience. Uh, the other maybe less happy thing I wanted to talk about was losing your analyst in 2018 to Chris Gedney, who passed away. Uh, how difficult was it to move on to another analyst after that, uh, knowing some of the circumstances around his passing? You know, it, w- it was tough. Chris was really, 
um, really struggling uh, the last couple of years, and um, it was painful to watch that. You know, he's an incredible guy, um, huge um, gift, you know, and love of life. I loved his family, loved football. Um, another guy like myself that's from the area that held this place in a maybe higher esteem than, than others would from the outside and wanted to be a part of it being great here all the time. And, you know, I think now everybody knows what the, the circumstances were there with, with Chris um, taking his own life, which is just um, brutal in, in so many ways. And we think all the time about uh, his family and, and uh, the impact that, that he has made uh, before and after that. Uh, moving on broadcast wise first is about being respectful to Chris and so it wasn't like I immediately you know was moving on to to fill that position whatever I think we knew um, pretty early how that process would would play out and Adam Terry who uh, we have you know kind of bumped up from a uh, pre and post game type position to the the game analyst is another guy who had a great deal of respect for Chris and revered that position and what it means to, to be in the spot that he's in, you know, sort of as an ambassador uh, for the program and he's an upstate New Yorker and and whatever. So that has made it, uh, has made it very easy. Um, Chris's wife, uh, Celie keeps in touch and we stay connected with them. And certainly the door is always open to, to them and the kids and, um, it, but but a very sad time here. I think it uh, impacted everybody who knew uh, Chris and knew that he was going through some some tough stuff. And uh, and for us on the broadcast, you know, you, you do change partners for various reasons from time to time. This is obviously a hor- horrific uh, reason to to have to do it. But uh, Adam w- was you know it's a really bright guy, so it, it was easy for him to kind of um, get up to speed. And uh, and I'm sure. As we go forward, it'll be even better working with him. So moving on to more happy things, uh, you are an enormous Seinfeld fan. And one of the times that I was in a blowout broadcast for a small college in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota, it was about a 50-point game. And in the second half, I tried to weave in Seinfeld quotes naturally uh, into my broadcast, and it was not good. I would never do it again. But have you ever done anything like that uh, with your broadcast and your love of Seinfeld? <laughs> I don't think Seinfeld specifically. I mean, and certainly if we've used Seinfeld lines, it hasn't been as a secret. It's been as a comeback to something or a back and forth, you know, with a, with a partner or analyst or whatever. But, um, you know, I think there were times, certainly in the baseball days, where on a Tuesday night in May, to keep yourself amused, you, you've had a little, you know, secret line that you, you know, somebody dared you to say or you wanted to get in. I haven't done that stuff in quite some time because I, um, I do have inside jokes uh, here and there, but I, I think uh, some of those things that you, uh, as you get older, you kind of uh, lose the interest for for sneaking those in, just just out of the idea of trying to keep everything. Uh, I don't know a certain level of whether it's uh, professionalism or uniformity or or what have you. Uh, you know, I guess you realize it's not as funny <laughs> as, you, as you think, or the 
uh, to lose the audience or to have them be on the outside of a joke is really not a positive. So I don't um, recall doing a lot of that uh, lately, but uh, we do have some some inside jokes that have made their way uh, on the air calls over the years, and they have uh, funny associated stories that are, are good for when you're <laughs> you're out with those people. <laughs> What would your broadcast horror stories be? And when I say broadcast horror stories, just when everything is going wrong with either your location or your equipment, or it really could be anything that just uh, you're mortified by at the moment, but you can laugh about now. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, everybody has that nightmare of uh, today's the day of the final for the class that you never went to, or you forgot to enroll, uh, you know, pull out of or whatever. The, the broadcast version of that is that somehow you cross signals and you didn't realize you needed to be at a certain place right now or um, that the, a game snuck up on you or, you know, any of those types of things. And I absolutely have those uh, types of nightmares. Have they ever actually happened? Um, I don't think so. I have had the occasional, um, I think twice in 20 years I've, miss the team bus for for one reason or another you know those those uh, are panic inducing um you know maybe in the early days or you're doing the the high school sports or whatever the you know the rosters are wrong or you know those kinds of silly things that are all sort of uh, rites of passage that i think you you figure out as you go along um in the industry i don't recall oh you know i've done the the game on the cell phone, that kind of thing, because the equipment didn't work. I think I called a uh, when I was at UNC Greensboro. We only did the men's games, but the women went to the NCAA tournament. So they said, "Hey, why don't you uh, tack on and, and we'll, we'll broadcast this game as well?" So we went down to Coleman Coliseum at Alabama for the first round of the, the NCAA tournament, and I don't even remember what the issue was in terms of getting connected but we couldn't whether the isdn was down or my fault or i don't even remember but uh, i called that whole game on the phone you know <laughs> and so that that kind of stinks because it's it should be a big occasion and it should sound super professional and and whatever and you're you're using two cans on a string um but i think anybody who's been doing this for any period of time has that you know you've got the long rain delay that you had to fill you've got you know in my case the six overtime basketball game or an 18 inning baseball game and um, those types of things. So that's also what, what makes it fun. I think it gives you an appreciation for when everything does go smoothly and uh, that type of thing. But the, you know, coming back to what we discussed before, one of the things that makes sports broadcasting interesting is that it's unscripted and that uh, on any given day, you could have a real curveball. Walk us through your prep process. Since we're coming up on football season, we'll use, uh, a football game starting the day after, we'll say Sunday, the day after your college football game for Syracuse. Sure, yeah. I think my my prep process is pretty – the process itself is about the same as everybody else. The, the way that I do it is, I think, pretty unique, and I've kind of gotten a little cottage industry here it's kind of a uh, as long as uncle sam isn't listening it's a little bit of an under the table uh, side business i have so i prepare for like on any given week it might be 10 to 12 football games a week um because i've 
I'm doing it for other people too. I'm getting their boards started, college and, and NFL uh, announcers. With this process, I have that sort of streamlines the the basic aspects of your spotting board, um, where you know if you're typing that out uh, from from scratch or writing it out by hand, it might take you hours to um, get everybody's roster information and their height, weight, hometown, all that stuff in on the depth chart and whatever. I've got a process that takes just a few minutes to do that. Um, and so for me, if it's, you know, Syracuse, Maryland, let's say, which will be the second game of, of this season um, on that Sunday, first of all, I do what's, you know, I would call administrative stuff. I'll send emails to the SID of the other school requesting to interview their coach, um, I, I might check in with them related to something, you know, having to do with our travel or credentials or uh, those types of things. Just the busy work. Try to get that out of the way as fast as possible. Um, then once I've got um, their roster, year-to-date stats, national rankings, some of those things, depth chart, loaded into um, my system. It's, for me, I, I view it in layers. You know, I'll go back and now what are the pronunciations that I need to be aware of for the key, you know, for anybody that has a wacky one, um, injuries, last game stats, uh, what's the series information between these teams and, and has anybody, you know, in this case, we're talking about Maryland's a non-league game that the, the chance that anybody on either team has played against the other is, is minimal. Um, but if it's a conference game, there might be something there. Now I can move over, um, Last the, the data that I would have had in the file for the same team last year, if that applied, which it certainly would for a conference team. Um, I go through kind of the preseason magazines. I go through the game notes. I go through you know the things I read, and and in each case there, I'm adding sort of layers of information um, to what I have. You know, the priorities are to have um, the basics done as soon as I can, which. You know, I tend to do everybody else's before myself, but if if I can rough out the basics, you know, the depth chart, I might have that done by by Sunday, or maybe I, I postpone the, my own Syracuse stuff um, for a little while. But then, by the time you get to the coaches' shows and the that stuff in the middle of the week, I'd like to have a pretty good concept of you know there and anything that's um, cracking as far as uh, Syracuse is concerned with. Uh, milestones or streaks and things that, you know, the individual player development and that type of stuff is coming up. What's at stake in this individual game? What type of storylines do we have? That's because that's, that's what you're going to deal with in your, you know, your Wednesday and Thursday interviews or what have you. Um, and then that just, that process just sort of keeps continuing. Um, I think through, I love going on the road because I think Friday is a nice, that's a good time on the plane to, uh, is there anything I missed here? Um, or I might go through and highlight some things um, that night or the, the morning of the of the game. That's kind of the last minute uh, process, and then you can work on memorizing the names and numbers if you haven't already. And, and so that's a that's a quick, I think, overview of of how it works. That's not certainly rocket science, uh, but um, you know, I think you try to you try to find the types of stuff that are going to allow you to provide some context um, to what's happening in the game. Without giving away your whole trade secret, you said that you have a system that knocks down adding 
heights, weights, all that stuff in in just a couple minutes. Uh, what is the any secrets you could give as to without giving too much away help make other people more efficient? Yeah, well, um, the very thin version of it is that everything I do is based in um, Microsoft Excel. Like, so I understand the argument when people say, "Well, I like to write it down." because it allows me to remember it, which is true. Well, so does typing it in or, or highlighting or however else you might study it. Um, the idea that you don't try to maximize your efficiency, I think, is a is a myth. Um, and I love all these, you know, again, mentors of mine, the Dan Hordes, the Iron Eagles, tremendous guys, and I know they, they chicken scratch their stuff out, and God bless them for, for doing it, and they're they're probably way better than me either at that and they're certainly better than me uh, on the air with with the finished product carter blackburn's another guy that and i totally get the the argument for it but you need to retain that information one of the way one of the i guess arguments for doing stuff in a digital way that's even if it's microsoft word or whatever um is you want to be able to retain that information from week to week or year to year you want to be able to move it around easier. So in football, the center's down, so the uh, right guard is going to move over and play center, and the backup right guard is going to start this week. Well, if you've got that in Microsoft Word, you're um, cutting and pasting you know, three different people around, and you might do that right, <laughs> but it also opens up um, margin for error. Uh, that you didn't move this guy's notes over or what. So mine, all the data is associated with the player's uniform number. So when I pop in the uniform number, um, in a given box and say that the, you know, the quarterback is number nine, the height, weight, hometown and stats for the person wearing number nine populates the box. So that's one thing Two, because of what Microsoft Excel allows you to, to, do with conditional formatting and everything there's a level of detail that's brought in that i wouldn't bother with if i was doing it by hand so um you bring in the ncaa rankings in every category rushing offense defense sacks whatever on my board if if you're in the top 20 in a category that's that's good that's hot it shows as red if you're in the bottom 20 in a category that's poor or cold that's that's bad it's blue i wouldn't if i had to write that down each each time individually i would maybe make a mistake and i wouldn't highlight it or wouldn't come across it maybe in the same way or i wouldn't bother you know if somebody's ranked 66th in something i wouldn't even bother to write it down that's middle of the pack you know um where in this case because the formulas are already written a certain way it's one click and all that information is in there so um, that's kind of the method to the madness, um, and it's it's worked for me. And and I'm totally a proponent of anybody doing what works for them. I just I don't try to hard. I'm not I'm not using this as a a way to hard sell anybody on my uh, system or whatever. I just um, understand that if you want to efficiently cut down on the time that you can do, you know, some of these other things. Now that's time you can put toward whether it's reading more or Googling, you know, more personal uh, 
history or you know actual stories as opposed to stats and, and factoids. Talking to people, watching their previous games, that's that's the time you're freeing up. Or God forbid, you use that time in your personal life. <laughs> you know that 45 minutes or an hour not doing this is time that you're taking your kid to school or you're working out or whatever it is that you you do. So um, that that's kind of the spiel on it. Who are your favorite broadcasters on an off day to just kind of sit back and either watch or listen to both on the national level and maybe some under-the-radar people in your region? Uh, that's great. Um, and it's it's way, way too many to list because uh, I, I pop around and I listen to really everybody. I, I really enjoy, um, you know, so if you want, we could narrow it down by, you know, sport or region or whatever. Um, up and coming, a guy, and I, I will say he's a close personal friend of mine, and he's fresh on the top of my mind now because I, I just was watching some of his stuff yesterday. But people that don't talk about that I, I think is a potential star in the making is is Tom Hart at ESPN. Um, and again, he's, he's probably my best friend in the industry, so that take that for what it's worth. But he absolutely goes about it the right way. He's smart and funny and properly researched and sets up his analysts and can do a lot of different sports. And I think it's only a matter of time before he's kind of given a, a chance to really explode. And he's already doing great stuff. I mean, he did a major league baseball game yesterday and he's, you know, does the top sec game and the college world series and on and on. Um, I'd mentioned that Dan Horde is a, uh, and again, probably not a household name, but a mentor to me, all of the Syracuse guys, really. Um, Ian Eagle couldn't be a nicer guy. Mike Tirico, uh, incredible in terms of, uh, forget about how good he is at his job and, and on air. I mean, incredibly uh, empathetic. Uh, a couple times here we're going through hard times for one reason or another, you know, in terms of uh, work stuff, the um, Bernie Fine situation here at Syracuse, Coach Beheim's, uh car accident last year. And I'm, I get physically ill thinking, well, how am I going to, address this on the air what do i need to do here that serves the listeners uh does this appropriately with respect etc that's really hard you know and i feel that pit in my stomach and then the phone rings and it's mike and he's calling to offer to walk through it you know i I didn't i'm not bothering him with that phone call he's calling me um sean mcdonough from day one for me has been a guy that i've um, idolized tried to emulate uh he's a you know tremendous person and resource and friend and you know and that's just that's just the Syracuse guys um I love listening I love listening to Kevin Harlan uh Kevin Kugler Wayne Larravee uh Matt LaPay up there in Wisconsin um baseball you know Gary Cohen obviously with the Mets is as good as they come I you know so my list of of top guys is probably not going to be much different than, than anybody else's but um and, and I'll tell you one thing i took out of the NSMA thing to continue rambling on. I listened to a bunch of kids' work, including yours, Logan. I I was encouraged by the quality overall of the young people there that I didn't know any of them, you know, walking in the door. And that, to me, you know, shows that I think people are taking advantage of the resources that are out there. People are uh, continuing to get better. I feel good about the industry going forward that there's a lot of, you know, young people that want to uh, be in it and want to do a good job, men and women both. And um, so it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, now I'm just a flood of names. Dan Schulman, obviously, and and uh, Bob Wischusen, 
you know, this way. So there's a lot of people that we come in, in contact with that are are really great, and I enjoy uh, consuming all of their work. And, and um, I hope I – I'm sure I miss people because there's a million other people that I enjoy uh, listening to, but I try to uh, pick and choose and, and get the, the do's and don'ts from all of them. Matt, if someone wanted to reach out to you, how would they do so? Uh, easiest way is my uh, Syracuse email address, uh, mrpark at syr.edu. Uh, that's an easy one. Uh, Twitter is at mattpark1. I'm not super active on that uh, during the off season, but check it all the time and, and pretty easy to reach. Once again, we are chatting with Matt Park, the voice of the Syracuse Orange. And, Matt, thanks so much for taking time to come on this podcast. Hey, I appreciate it, Logan. And, uh, you know, there's two or three of you guys that do these podcasts, and that's what gets me through my bike rides and that type of thing in the summer and uh, enjoy as an industry that we're all kind of close enough together to, to compare notes and share with one another. It's uh, it, It's been a pleasure, and I appreciate your asking me. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find the Say the Damn Score podcast. And if you can't, let me know, and I'll try to get it where you're looking for it. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice, and retweets and shares are really valuable. They help this show grow and to become better, so any feedback you can offer, I would greatly appreciate it. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.